This is They Create Worlds, Episode 24, The Project and Others in the Field. If anybody wants to find me, I'll be in the last place you would look. In a place where people used to be, a land that's called reality, you'll find me there. Welcome to They Create World. I'm Jeff, and I'm joined by my co-host, Alex. Hello. Today, we will be going over... Nothing that's actually video game related, at least as far as from a historical standpoint. We are going to be going over Alex's project and some of the things that he's been working on. That's right. I mean, this entire podcast is in a way in support of the books that I'm writing and the research that I'm doing. And so it seems like we talked about that a little bit at the very beginning. And then we've had a lot of episodes where we've talked about video game history, which is still going to be the prime focus, of course, of what we're doing here. But it seems like it's been long enough that it makes sense to kind of talk about not just what I'm doing, but also just about where the state of video game history research kind of is right now. And some of the really exciting stuff that's being done, because I think at this moment, this is really the first point that a lot of people have really been taking a serious, critical and hard look at this history and trying to sort out the fact from the fiction. I know you started working on this. A long, long time ago, all the way back, even tangentially when you were in college. I know there was not a lot done from an academic standpoint, professionally done, at least out there in the community. And it seems like, especially in the last year or two, it's really sort of blown up. You've actually been approached by the Smithsonian at one point here. That's right. I'm actually now serving as a consultant on a project called the Video Game Pioneers Archive, which is being done by the Smithsonian. The person heading the project is Christopher Weaver, who is very important in the history of video games himself as the co-founder of Bethesda, which has done one or two products that people like. A few. Yeah, here and there. And so he used to be Quite a game creator until he took an arrow to the knee. He did. Skyrim. And (laughs) now he is an academic. He's at MIT, and he has started collaborating with the Smithsonian on this Video Game Pioneers project where they are going to target, I guess I should say we, Mm -hmm. are going to target 20 or so individuals that were active between the 1960s and the 1980s. Well, 1960 and 1980, not beyond into the 1980s that were pioneers of the computer game industry. It's kind of narrowly focused there right now. They aren't doing arcade people at this point. But it's at the very beginning of the process, and certainly the hope is that if this is something that really resonates and really takes off, that funding can be found to kind of extend it. And I am just a consultant on it. I'm I'm doing this for free. I'm, I'm not getting paid by the Smithsonian, and I'm not one of the ones making the big decisions. But Basically, I'll be helping shape the questions that will be asked in these oral history interviews, which are expected to be up to five hours in length per person. I mean, these are very serious oral history interviews that are intended to capture the entirety of the person's experience, not just narrowly focused on specifically the games, but on their entire lives as a way to get to the heart of what made these people creative, what made them innovators, and why these are the people that shaped the video game industry as we know today. So effectively, you are just going to be a consultant, help come up with questions, maybe help try to influence who they actually interview. It actually sort of gets your name out there a bit more from the academic standpoint. Absolutely. And certainly, I'm not the only one involved. There are a great deal of people collaborating on this. All of the major institutions that have significant personal papers collections related to video games, UT Austin and Stanford and the Strong, the International Center for the History of Electronic Games at the Strong Museum in Rochester, New York, are all collaborating on this. Several prominent individuals within the video game industry that have always been interested in their own history, like Don Daglow, John Romero, 
and Steve Moretzky of Infocom fame are all collaborating. Uh, another outside consultant like myself uh, is Jimmy Mayer of the Digital Antiquarian, uh, who is absolutely the most fantastic person writing about video game history today, seriously. If you haven't been to the Digital Antiquarian yet and you are at all interested in video game history, go there because it's not just that he is so insightful in his analysis, it's also that he's just an amazing writer. He really communicates it well in a written format. Exactly. So he's another person that's also consulting on this project. It's a big deal. This is the first time that academia has really taken a serious look at this history. The Computer History Museum, which is also consulting on this project, incidentally, in Silicon Valley has done a small number of oral history interviews with video game pioneers. They've interviewed Ralph Baer, for instance, who's no longer with us, so it's very nice that they interviewed him. Uh, They interviewed Ted Dabney, who was the co-founder of Atari. They've interviewed a couple of other people, but their focus is on computer history generally. So they're not focusing on these video game people. They've been interviewing a lot of people that were active in the 50s and 60s and 70s, the people that were pioneering mini computers, the people that were pioneering semiconductor memory and microprocessors and all of that kind of stuff. That's kind of where their main focus is. You have the Strong up in Rochester, which is very serious about preserving video game history, but they haven't been doing oral history yet. They've been focusing on documenting games, archiving games. They've been doing a lot of recording of people playing through games, you know, capture, video capture. So that even if someday the physical games decay and emulation can't capture all the nuance because emulation is never perfect, there's at least some kind of record of how these games played and what they looked like and what they sounded like, which emulation doesn't always capture. So they're not doing oral history either. So it's really exciting that there's an institution out there that is actually really interested in starting to capture some of these stories because the really early pioneers, they're in their 70s, some of them are in their 80s. They're not going to be around forever. And I think it is important that those stories get captured. I I may have mentioned this in a, a previous episode, so if I have my apologies, but when I interviewed Tom Kalinske, who was the CEO of Sega in the 90s, at the end of the interview, he did thank me for taking an interest because he came out of the toy industry. He was at Mattel. And, you know, in his words, nobody bothered to ask the pioneers in the toy industry. Mm-hmm why they did what they did or how they invented what they invented. And that opportunity was lost. I mean, obviously, there's still a lot of records and documentation. It's not like we have no idea what went on in the beginning of the toy industry, but... You don't have that personal angle of the person who actually came up with the toy. You don't know their life story. You don't know what their inspiration. A lot of times, whenever you see success, you only see the little pillar of success. A lot of the thing that that pillar of success is built on, it's almost like an iceberg. You see what's above the water. Below the water is all the failures, all the wrong turns, all the restarts because of what's happened. There's so much restarting and rethinking, rejiggering whenever you're trying to come up with something new or just grow as a human being. Sure, that's absolutely correct. And a lot of that has been lost in a lot of industries because Oral history is one of these things that really only came into vogue in the last two or three decades. And so it just wasn't being done when some of these people from the teens or 20s or 30s or whatever were still alive. But the video game industry, we have an opportunity here to capture the thoughts and the personalities of the vast majority of the important pioneers in the industry, most of whom are still alive. I think it's wonderful that something like this Smithsonian project, the Video Game Pioneers Archive, is coming into existence. I wish it had come into existence five years earlier, quite frankly, but that's always the way it is. I mean, you you always miss something. It's coming in at a time when it can still do a lot of good, and I really hope that they are able to expand past that initial 20 or so interviews that we're planning to do and turn this into something that can really document the entire movement down to the most minor of of artists and coders and whatnot that contributed to some of these truly amazing games. 
and really have it be very comprehensive. We've mentioned it before that a lot of the creative side of things have been interviewed ad nauseum where, how'd you come up with this thing? How'd you come up with that thing? But there's more than just the creative side. You have a lot of the business side of it and some of the interaction going on between the two of them. And that's where some of your work has gone into. And hopefully some of that would come to light with having five hours dedicated per person here. Yeah, absolutely. And and right, that business side. I mean, I'll give a great example of the business side that's not just a dry kind of these were our marketing techniques, these were our this and that. Space Invaders. Mm-hmm. Just about the most popular arcade game ever. Uh, Pac-Man's more popular, I think it's fair to say, but certainly one of the most popular arcade games ever. And certainly the first game that really kicked off a powerful video arcade game boom. The story always was, and, and literally always was, from the moment that Space Invaders was introduced into the United States in 1979, the story always was, this is the game that was so popular in Japan that it caused a shortage of 100 yen coins. Mm -hmm. And the Japanese actually had to increase their production of 100 yen coins to compensate. That story has been repeated in just about every history of Space Invaders. And it goes, like I said, it goes straight back. You can look at newspaper articles in 1980 that Mm -hmm. are reporting on the Space Invaders craze as it's happening in the United States. And these newspaper articles are saying that exact same thing. Well, it's not true. Because, no one checked. Yes. And I, I forget who it was, so I can't credit them. But there actually was a person that did kind of a paper on this where they actually contacted the Japanese Mint. Mm-hmm. And they actually got the figures. Because that's, that's public record stuff. You know, it's right. government stuff. For 100 yen coin production in all of those years. And there was never that big jump that people talk about. There's no, uh, you know, quadrupling or tripling or what have you of 100 yen coin production. These things don't just appear out of thin air, these kind of stories. Mm -hmm. You figure that at some level there has to be some truth to it. But nobody has been interviewing people that were at Taito at the time that were business people because nobody tends to interview the business people. Well, I did. I interviewed Ed Miller, who was the founding president of Taito America back in 1973 and was with the company until about 1980. Mm -hmm. And I interviewed Paul Moriarty, who was with Taito America from its founding. He was a friend of Ed Miller. So when Ed Miller founded Taito America, he called up Paul Moriarty and was like, hey, you doing anything interesting? And Paul's like, well, not really. He's like, well, come out with me to Chicago and we're going to found this company. So Paul Moriarty was with Taito from the beginning, 1973, and then he eventually became the president uh, a couple of years after Ed Miller left, and he stayed with the company until 1987. I'm pretty sure nobody had talked to either of these individuals before uh, in a historical perspective. Obviously, they gave interviews when they were in charge of the company and whatnot. Right. But I don't think anyone had ever interviewed them from a historical perspective before either one, because there's this tendency not to focus on business people. And both of them told me the exact same thing, and they both did it without prompting. You have to be careful when you interview people because sometimes interview subjects will just agree with you. If you say, so I've heard that this and that happened, they'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, this, this and that definitely happened. And, you know, sometimes <laughs> sometimes it actually didn't. I mean, it's, it's not that they're lying. It's that it's that kind of confirmation bias kind of thing where if somebody says it was this way, then they're like, was it that way? Well, I guess if so-and-so said it was it that way, it must have been that way. So yeah, sure, it was that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, there's nothing dishonest about it. So both of them, without me asking about 100 yen shortages, without me asking about any of that, both of them told me that because Space Invaders was so popular, the games were really eating up the 100 yen coins in Japan like crazy. There were a lot of 100 yen coins that were stuck in arcade machines and weren't going back into circulation in the economy. So the Japanese diet, actually members of it, actually came to Taito. Because you may recall from our previous episodes that in Japan, the manufacturers are often also the operators of the games. Right, because everything's so much smaller there. Therefore, they don't have to play with the whole distribution game like you have to in the United States. Right. So Taito is actually operating a lot of those Space Invaders machines that are out in the, in the wild. 
So members of the Japanese Diet actually came to Taito and said, we have to figure out a way to get these coins out of these machines faster because way too many hundred yen coins are being tied up in these arcade cabinets. And so they worked with the Diet to try to just get the turnaround faster, to get them out of the machines, get them processed, get them deposited back in the banks faster so that the coins are circulating instead mm -hmm. of just being stuck. So there's the origin of your shortage myth. Right. There was never a shortage of the coins. There was never an increase in production to increase the number of coins out there. But there were negotiations to be like, hey, can't we just get these coins back into the marketplace a little faster? Instead of you, say, for example, delivering, doing a big bank delivery every week or twice a week, let's do that every day. Yeah, I mean, I don't know what the exact, you know, details are, but yeah, something like that. Exactly. That's the origin, clearly, of the 100 yen shortage myth. But if I hadn't interviewed two of the business people that were at Taito at the time this was going on. The myth, because the lie is out there, the story is out there, and it's just repeated by everyone. It becomes the truth. Exactly. And so I am playing a role, once I publish on that, I'm playing a role in explaining where this came from, but it's only because I targeted two prominent business people at Taito that nobody had interviewed before. And I don't mean that to make myself sound all high and mighty. It's just that there hasn't been that focus on the businessmen with a few very big, uh, larger-than-life examples like a Nolan Bushnell or a Trip Hawkins. It's important that we interview all those people. And, and the Video Game Pioneer archive may not interview some of those people, quite frankly. I mean, I would certainly love to see some kind of permanent oral history project akin to what the Academy of Television Arts does with television personalities. They have done a huge number of interviews in the last two decades with producers and actors and directors and writers and all of that and, and made them available. I'd love to see something permanent like that appear in the realm of video games as well. But at the moment... The Pioneer's Archive isn't really going to go there for the most part. But like you said, even if you're doing a five-hour interview with even a designer or a developer, you may get a little more of that perspective than you often get when people just do an interview where they're very interested only in the nuts and bolts and how the specific game was made. That makes sense. To go more into your own work and your own research, I know you've done all these interviews, and I'm not even sure what your number you're up to now. I know what we were... <laughs> About a year ago. Yeah, it's it's somewhere around 70 or just north of 70. I, I tend to go in spurts. There'll be weeks where I'm interviewing like three or four people, and then I'll go like two months where I talk to one or two people. So it's, you know, it's not like it's it's steady, but it's 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 over 70 at this point, or at least around 70, I'd have to check. All right. How about your work with writing the book itself? I know you've been working on some of the chapters and have at least the first few of them done. At this point, I have six chapters that are pretty well done, that I'm pretty happy with and won't change in any meaningful way. It's hard to say exactly how big the first book is going to be. The first book is covering prehistory up to 1982. Before the crash. Yeah, exactly, right up to the crash. I'm guessing it's going to be around 24 chapters. Mm-hmm. It may end up being more. I mean, it's just, it's so hard to tell. I mean, especially as I'm still learning new things, even as I'm starting to, you know, write it. So if it does end up being 24-ish chapters, I mean, that's a, that's a quarter of the book mm -hmm. written, six chapters is. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> I mean, it's, I'm behind where I wanted to be. I was hoping I could write two chapters a month and... Mm -hmm. Obviously, that hasn't happened because I have six chapters and about half of a seventh chapter written, and uh, I started really seriously in January, and it's August, so that's eight months and less than less than eight chapters. That's not even a chapter a month, so right. I fail. But I am writing it. I am very serious about trying to get something in a printable form sooner rather than later because it does feel like I've been working on this so long, it's time to get something out there, and I feel like I have enough material that I can tell an interesting and coherent story. Mm -hmm. I know, even though you're still bringing in a lot of information, and you're probably going to be revising this thing till the day you die, 
you are definitely at a point where you have enough knowledge that you can tell a con coherent story and then every whatever many of years put out a new revision after you learn new things, new tidbits, new whatever. Oh, sure. But, you know, it's so funny. I mean, I thought, you know, I started the blog mm -hmm. and the blog was a way to kind of organize my thoughts before I started writing the book. And then writing the blog became such an involved thing that I realized that it would be forever before I got anywhere near 1982 and the blog. And so mm -hmm. I needed to just mostly abandon that and just start writing the book if I was ever going to write a book, which is why the blog hasn't been updated since November. It's not that obviously I've lost interest in this. It's just that I had to shift my writing focus to the book and kind of neglect the blog. I plan to go back to the blog at some point, but right now I just have to focus on that book. And I thought that when I was writing the blog posts on some of this early stuff, stuff going on in the 50s, 60s, and early, early 70s, mm -hmm. I thought when I wrote those blog posts that I had pretty much had that stuff figured out. I mean, barring an exciting new interview subject or an exciting new discovery like the Galaxy Game business plan that I just was given a while back. I figured this is it. I've got most of the story for this period. And then I started writing the book on that exact same time period. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing how much more stuff I've discovered that I thought I had it all figured out with the blog and I just keep discovering more stuff from this period. And it's not just me. Mm -hmm. It's also because I'm collaborating with other researchers and you know, at this point, I'd really like to give a shout out to a guy named Ethan Johnson. He's up in Chicago. Mm -hmm. I don't know him well. I, I can't say too much about who he is or what he's doing just because we're just corresponding online. But he has been digging into some of the really early stuff. Chicago has some decent archives of cash box and replay and vending times and whatever, since Chicago was the center of the coin-op industry, and these were the trade publications of the coin-op industry, some of the Chicago libraries have kept a better collection of those than most of the rest of the country for that reason. Right. He's been delving into some of the early stuff in the 1960s, and it's incredible. He's finding out more about Nutting Associates, the company that Nolan Bushnell did computer space with. And about Nutting Industries, which was their competitor, which was founded by Bill Nutting's brother, Dave. And so they started in partnership, the typical business guy plus tech guy equals profit relationship. And then the business guy and the tech guy went their separate ways and then chaos. But <laughs> he's been delving into that and he's actually discovered a couple of the people that were involved in the late 60s, guys that are in their 80s today that nobody had ever thought to contact. Gene Wagner, who was the sales manager at Nutting Industries, and Harold Montgomery, who was the other tech guy at Nutting Industries. Dave Nutting was an industrial designer, so he wasn't an engineer. It's just he knew how to package and present a product. Mm-hmm. Whereas Harold Montgomery was the actual engineer that did a lot of the work on this product. He's found both these guys. He's already interviewed Gene Wagner. And by the time this episode airs, he should have also interviewed Harold Montgomery. It just hasn't happened yet as we're recording here. These are incredibly important guys because even though they weren't working on video games, they were working on this IQ computer product that was a trivia quiz game that was pre-video. This is where kind of the video game industry was born because it was really the renaissance in arcade game design as represented by the quiz games, as represented by some more realistic shooting and driving games that created the market environment that would allow something like Pong to be accepted and thrive within this arcade industry. It started with these quiz games. It really did. Mm -hmm. And... So the fact that he's talking to these guys and, you know, he's getting to them just before it's too late because, you know, they're in their 80s. They're not going to be around very much longer. Dave Nutting's been talked to. Bill Nutting sadly never was. He died in 2005. And sadly, no one interviewed him to get his full story, which would have been fascinating. Some of these supporting players from the late 1960s are finally getting interviewed because of the work that that this guy, Ethan Johnson, doing with which is just fantastic. And again, he's not an academic. He's not a journalist. He's just another enthusiast like myself, like Jimmy Meyer, who does such a great job with Digital Antiquarian, like Keith Smith, who is doing the All in, uh, All in Color for a Quarter blog and is writing a book called All in Color for a Quarter on the early arcade video game industry that'll hopefully be out sometime this year. These are enthusiasts 
that are doing this. But the difference between us and kind of the first generation of enthusiasts that paved the way for this more in-depth research uh, that we're writing, you know, in the 90s or 2000s is that we are taking a more scholarly bent towards the material. So we are being the skeptics. We are taking in these stories and taking in this research, but always questioning and always seeking the other side or another side of these stories and poking at them until we get something that feels like it's close to the truth. We'll never have the truth. The truth is really an ideal abstract concept more than it is something that Mm -hmm. ever actually exists in the world because of the way human memory works and human thought works. But it feels like we're at a point now where this stuff is being examined critically and is being examined seriously. A true, forgiven value of true, history of the video game industry can finally be written. And it's not the journalists that's doing it. It's not the academics primarily that are doing it. It's people like us that are interested in this and really taking a rigorous approach. So you've interacted with Keith, Ethan, and others. Are all of you of a similar academic bent? I know you have your MLS degree as a professional librarian doing research. You also have got to the bar in Ohio, so you know about researching from a legal standpoint. Does everyone else have a similar professional bent to themselves? Well, certainly Jimmy Meyer, the digital antiquarian, does. Mm. Jimmy, according to his website, does have a BA, a bachelor's in literary studies, and a master's degree in aesthetic studies. Mm. So he is very much approaching video games with a critical eye as a medium. I think far more than any of the rest of us are doing. I mean, I'm approaching it more from the nuts and bolts side of how did they evolve? What was popular? How did this being popular lead to this being popular? How did how did this game mechanic grow from here to here to here to where it hit the big time? How was this stuff marketed and how did that affect things? You know, Jimmy really takes a critical look. His focus is on ludic narrative, on ludic games, storytelling. Mm-hmm. So his primary focus is on adventure games, uh, both text and graphical, with a secondary focus on computer RPGs, which also have a ludic component, and much less focus on action games and that kind of thing. And and I think as his blog goes on, he'll probably get into game genres in which narrative emerges as well, games like Civilization or... Sim City or whatnot, where there really isn't a narrative, but you kind of create your own narrative in the way you interact with the game and forge your own unique world. That's where his focus is. And he doesn't just look at the history, but he looks at the nature of these games and what they're striving to be and how close they come to that ideal and where their faults are from an aesthetic perspective. He's really the only one doing that. I mean... I don't think anyone else is doing that with any kind of sophistication. I mean, there are people that review games. This stuff was fun. This stuff was less fun. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But there's a lot of subjective quality to that. But he's really bringing in a lot of uh, philosophical evaluation of this stuff. And he is also doing a very good job of placing ludic narrative in games in the larger context of other forms of media and other forms of entertainment. That's really important. It's not something that I'm really doing in my own work. I mean, I will certainly at times draw parallels or whatnot, but I try to put games in a larger technological context. Mm -hmm. Why these things are happening at these times when you look at the wider goings-on in computer development and technological development. And sociologically. Mm -hmm, Sure. But I'm not really looking at it so much from a critical point of view on the individual games in terms of their themes, in terms of their influences outside of video games, in terms of their aesthetics. Uh, And I don't think anyone else really is either. So that's kind of a niche that Jimmy's given himself and one that I think is very valuable and important. For those who may not know, what is a ludic game? Well, 
it's not that games themselves are ludic. The term ludic specifically means spontaneous and undirected playfulness. Ludic constructs are are constructs that are all about play. And I'm I'm not a philosopher, and I'm not a I don't study this stuff, so I I may miss the mark a little bit in in my defining of things, but. Ludic narrative is the narrative that emerges out of play and and emerges out of playfulness. And Mm -hmm. that can be directed in the sense that as you play, the story is revealed to you, like in an adventure game where you're solving puzzles and you learn more about the world around you. Or it can be something like a civilization where your play crafts the narrative. Mm Mm-hmm. A civilization doesn't have a narrative other than the very broad build an empire to stand the test of time. But as you develop your civilization in your own unique way, as you encounter other civilizations and have your own unique contacts with them, a narrative of your experience emerges. Yeah, one in your mind is like, I've carried on this long war against Napoleon, and we had our own version of the Hundred Year War, except in civilization terms, it turned into the Thousand Year War. Right. <laughs> And then Gandhi got nukes and used them on everybody because he does that. <laughs> right. And so what Jimmy's doing in the Digital Antiquarian, at least from my perspective, if he's listening, he might shake his head and disgust at how I characterize <laughs> his work. But um, what Jimmy's doing with the Digital Antiquarian is he is examining the intersection of gameplay and narrative. So he's mm-hmm. he's not concerned with your just your Twitch action games. He's not concerned with your shooters. He's not concerned with Super Mario Brothers. Because even if occasionally there's a trapping of a story overlaid on top of that, hey, you know, president's been kidnapped. Are you a bad enough dude to save him? There's really not a story. Right. So he's he's interested in the way gameplay and story merge and how effectively games place you in, in a different world and, and how their systems enhance the experience or detract from the experience and stuff like that. So he only looks at computer games. He doesn't look at console games hardly at all. And even in the subset of computer games, he ignores a lot of what's going on. But nobody is examining interactive fiction. Mm-hmm. To the degree he is. Nobody is examining graphical adventures to the degree he is. Nobody's examining RPGs to the degree he is. And just explaining not just who made them and when they made them and how they made them, but also why they made them and why it's important that they were made in the ways they were and how outside forces outside the video game industry itself shaped the way ludic narrative has has developed over the decades. Sort of like the Discovery Channel, you turn into certain things like that, especially when you go and see some sort of documentary on something or other. I particularly like, for myself, Modern Marvels, where they go, how something that's so innocuous, like blue, and they just turn that thing into something that really draws you in, the narrative of how things happen. Mm -hmm. Another one of my favorite kind of things like that is um, a show called Connections where a gentleman starts off with something really, really innocuous and just tells you how that came about and tells the whole story of the social factors, the technological factors, all sorts of things, and the little daisy chain all the way around to get to the fact that you have table salt. Right. And, uh, you know, Jimmy is, on a smaller scale, I think, doing a lot of the same thing, and, and that's to be commended. Now, Keith Smith with All in Color for Quarter is taking a very different approach, but it's a no less valuable approach in its own way. And I've actually, I've read his book because I've been given a preview copy of it. So I've read more than what he's put on his blog. He's exerted large portions of his book on his blog to uh, kind of whet the appetite for what's coming. But what he's doing is he is just taking as detailed a look as possible at all of the players, no matter how small, mm-hmm. that were involved in the video arcade game industry in what he terms the Bronze Age, which is from the birth of arcade video games up to Space Invaders, the, the formative period. Mm-hmm. And then what he and others have referred to as the Golden Age, which is the period from Space Invaders hitting big through to the crash of the arcade industry that we've discussed previously. What he's done is chronicled every company involved, because one of the real traps 
that is very easy to get into is the whole victors write the history kind of thing where Space Invaders was big, Pac-Man was big, Asteroids was big, Donkey Kong was big, and, you know, a half dozen other games were big. That obviously was not the entire video game tweet that was an arcade. Exactly. And, and it, it comes to the point where that's all we talk about sometimes are the hits. But it's, it's like you said, for every hit, there were, you know, a dozen false starts or missed opportunities or corrections or what have Victims you. Victims of circumstance. Yeah, sure. So there's a lot more to the way the video game industry developed than is usually discussed. For instance, Pong. Mm -hmm. There's kind of this idea that video games, of course, began with Pong. I mean, it wasn't the very first game, but it was the hit. You know, it was the first mm -hmm. big hit. There's kind of this idea that Pong happened and then poof, we had video games. It's like magically there's video games. You know, now we have video game industry. And I think we've talked about this a little bit before, but it really didn't happen that way. You had Pong and you had a bunch of Pong clones and then you had the market collapse mm -hmm. and you really had a period in there where video games were only of kind of middling success. And you had a lot of companies in this time period that were figuring out or trying to figure out what video games are going to be. And most of these companies get completely ignored mm -hmm. because most of them didn't make it to the golden age. Most of them died in the bronze age, either died or got bought out by another company. Because once Space Invaders hit, the establishment, by which I mean the big pinball companies in Chicago, Gottlieb, Bally, Williams, etc., once Space Invaders hit big, they realized that they should be in this industry. Bally was already in the industry through their Midway subsidiary, but the rest of them really weren't. And so once they realized that there was something big here, they finally fully embraced video games and pushed the little guy out. Plus, because Space Invaders and then later Pac-Man were so successful, Japan became so hot. And so all of these Japanese games were flooding the market. Normally, uh, licensed Japanese, other than Taito, weren't setting up their own factories. They were licensing to Atari. They were licensing to Williams. They were licensing to Bally. They were licensing to Stern, some of these companies. But the Japanese product was flooding in and largely displaced the American companies that had been struggling to build this industry. So between the big pinball guys getting in and the Japanese getting in, you have all of these little companies like Project Support Engineering, PMC Electronics, Meadows Games, Ramtech, Exidy, which did survive at least uh, through the Golden Age and beyond, but was still a much smaller company, that nobody has really heard of, and to a large degree, nobody's really researched. But they were just as much a part of creating this arcade video game industry as Midway or Atari or Namco or any of these other companies were. And it's important to kind of capture their history too, because when it comes time to put all of this stuff in larger context, you need the complete picture in order to be able to do it. And that means studying the little guys just as much as study the big guys. And so while Keith isn't really putting arcade video games often into a wider context within the world or applying the same kind of critical eye to games themselves as Jimmy as a digital antiquarian, he is pulling together a lost history and a secret history of the arcade industry that increases our understanding of what went on. And he has interviewed a ton of people that nobody else has ever interviewed. Founders of companies in the 70s and 80s programmers and artists at companies in the 70s and early 80s that just nobody has cared about before. And he's also amassed a large collection of replay and play meter magazines, the trade publications of the coin-op industry, which have not been studied by most scholars just because they're very hard to come by. And he's gathered those and, and also shared those with me. So I've I've got those now too. He is revealing a far more nuanced video arcade game industry than any previous publication has ever kind of alluded to existing. And that's very important, too. 
You mentioned in there that Keith is doing more as an enthusiast than academia. What had existed before the Smithsonian Project from an academic standpoint, as far as professional historians, quote-unquote, actually categorizing anything in the video game industry? Almost nothing. Historians really haven't done anything with it. For historians, it's too new. Mm -hmm. Historians tend to tackle things 70, 80, 100 years after they happen because they feel it takes that long to have proper perspective on events because it takes that long for all the necessary information to surface Mm -hmm. in order to be able to put things in proper context. The majority of work in academia has been done by media studies people, cultural studies people, individuals that are interested in the effect of games on people, psychologically speaking, and the effect of games on society, culturally speaking, but don't really have a grounding in the history as near as I can tell, and I've read papers and I've read books written by some of these academics, and from what I can tell, they basically assume that the history that's already been written is accurate, and then they try to make bigger points aesthetically, culturally, psychologically, etc., based on that already existing history. The problem is, as we've discussed time and again on this podcast, the existing history is wrong. Really makes me wonder how much of a lot of other history is wrong. You know, that's an excellent point, because I've read books where the video game portion of it is just one subset of a larger point. Like, there was a book written a couple of years ago by Walter Isaacson, who's famous for the Steve Jobs biography he wrote a few years ago, but he wrote another book a couple of years ago called The Innovators, mm-hmm. which was about the people that innovated in, in tech, in computers. And so, you know, he had chapters on, on various innovators, and one of those innovators he discussed was Nolan Bushnell. And so, of course, he has the standard Nolan Bushnell account, and it's horribly wrong. I mean, his chapter on video games is horribly wrong. Mm-hmm. His chapters on the other things seem right to me as near as I can tell. I mean, obviously, as part of my studying of video game history, I've studied computer history as well, because you need to know that to be able to have proper context. Right. But of course, I haven't delved into the primary sources of computer history in the same way that I've delved into the primary sources of computer game history. So his other stuff looks right to me, but then it does make you wonder. It's like if he got the video game stuff so wrong how much of the rest of it and and how are you supposed to know well yeah you you go back to the primary sources uh, that that's how you know i will say this though mm-hmm. i think that there has been a lot more interest in computer history for a long time and that there's been a lot more good work done in that field so you can kind of rely on the secondary literature there The problem with video games is you can't rely on the secondary literature yet because all the people that have written the secondary literature, with a couple of exceptions, I don't want to paint everyone with the same brush, but the vast majority of the secondary literature that has been written in video game history has been based on poor research of the primary sources. Mm. And so you can't trust the secondary literature yet. And it's interesting... Academics that are writing in video games right now, they have this term that uh, came out of a specific academic article called the chronicling era. Hmm. Basically, the argument of this article is that video game history has largely been stuck in the chronicling era, which is that you're just writing a a chronicle in the traditional sense, like they used to write chronicles back in the early Middle Ages, where you just have a laundry list of this person did this then, this person did that then. It's all about the who, the what, and the where, not the why, you Hmm. see. And the idea is that real history puts events in context. Which I think is is true. I don't want to be too it's disdainful fair. of that point. History without context is pretty useless. Most of uh, your grade school history classes would probably attest to this if you remember <laughs> back then. 
Oh, it's terrible. I mean, you know, I'm not a I'm not a teacher, and I I don't think I ever will be a teacher. But I would teach history so much differently in high school than history was taught to me. It's so fascinating. I mean, this is a complete tangent, but look at look at how many people love Game of Thrones. Yep. And you know, you could teach history like Game of Thrones because <laughs> there is so much crazy shit that's happened in history that <laughs> you could you know you could make it lively. But instead, nobody does. It's just names and dates. But that's a, that's a complete tangent. I don't want to get too far down that right. that rabbit hole. The idea, though, of this whole chronicling era thing, while, of course, history needs to be placed in context, the idea is that people are focusing too much on who did what when and not focusing nearly enough on the why. And that it's time to move beyond that and start contextualizing things. And they're very disdainful, quite frankly. I've read many academic articles that are very disdainful of amateurs and hobbyists and enthusiasts that are only seeking to chronicle what happened. Hmm. I mean, they're, they're almost offended by it. How dare you? <laughs> Here's the thing. Of course stuff needs to be put into proper context. But right now, almost none of it's been chronicled correctly. We cannot enter a post-chronicle era right now in video game history because the chronicle is wrong. You don't have the facts right. How are you going to have proper context until you have the facts right? What if we were to say, for example, Nolan Bushnell created Pong, Space Invaders, and this is the truth. And then we come across, well, that didn't happen. Right. And, and, but that was the truth, and the fact that it's the truth that's out there and the truth that's repeated, that's what gets put into history books. That's what gets put into whatever. And then 80 to 100 years later... Some person goes wrong, goes, okay, I want to provide context to that video game thing that happened in the 1990s and 1980s. Oh, look, here's a book that said Nolan Bushnell made Pong and Space Invaders. Obviously, that's correct because this is the primary source. So let's uh, continue on and make context about how much, how great he is. It's wrong. Without having the source material be accurate, how are the people who want to have give context anything going to give accurate context and it makes me really wonder if that with the fact that we have enthusiasts now who have the capability like what we're doing like what keith is doing jimmy ethan the fact that they're willing to put in this effort right when you have the ability to get primary sources where you're able to record physically verbally like this the source from the horse's mouth and able to pass that on to the future, this is, might be the first time we actually have the chance to have a much more accurate history to pass on to our descendants than we ever did in the past. It really makes me wonder just how wrong some of the details are for history in the past, especially the further back you go when you don't have so many primary sources and even those primary sources are going to be pulled into question as to whether or not they're accurate. Mm-hmm. Who was the person that wrote that? Was it the victor? Victor win- writes the history. Right. There's all these nuances. You don't know about the people who lost. You don't know their stories, their contributions. You could have someone who just comes in and goes, take someone who doesn't have the strong personality in order to really shape history, but some guy who does comes in and takes that person's really brilliant invention and takes it as his own, writes the history so that's the truth. Mm -hmm. You can sort of see that with something that's somewhat recent 100 years ago, Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla. Yeah, The amount of stuff that went back and forth between those two individuals is mind-blowing, and some of the stuff that when people really started to dig into what, Tesla contributed for Edison is shocking, but the story at the time, the truth, the quote-unquote truth, is Edison did all this other stuff, Mm -hmm. but he had that kind of really strong personality where he could assert, this is the truth, this is my truth, therefore this is the truth that's going to be written down in history. Well, that's, that's very true, and I think that a lot of academics that are writing right now, which, as I said, are not trained historians by and large, are content to accept the story that's been written and feel like, okay, we've done the chronicle, now it's time to put the chronicle into context. But it's it's too soon. Now, you always want to put history in context. It is better to write 
a historical work that chronicles events accurately and puts those events into context at the same time than it is to just write a chronicle. Context is important, but you can't take a faulty chronicle Mm -hmm. and then try to apply context to that because you're just going to screw the whole thing up when you do that. It's just, it's not going to work. And, you know, we've been talking a lot about oral history, but I do think it's important to note that oral history while it can be valuable to fill in the gaps, is not obviously the best form of history because memory is so deceptive. Yes, 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 yes. I have trouble remembering what I had for dinner yesterday. And not only is memory deceptive, but studies have shown that the more often you access a particular memory, the more horribly wrong you get it each time you access it. So the the more times you ask somebody to relay an event that happened, the more likely they are to to get it wrong. The more you ask and them, and embellish it, and embellish it, and not even not even trying, not even trying to be deceptive. It's just naturally what happens. Mm-hmm. So the best evidence is documentary evidence. It always is, and that's what historians use first and foremost. Is they use documents. Documentary evidence, obviously, people can can have a bias when they write a document, but documentary evidence doesn't lie in the sense that it'll say the same thing 500 years from now as it did when it was first written. It doesn't change its story. It always tells whatever truth that document contains. Not all documents are going to be accurate, but the truth within that document will be the same truth 500, 1,000, 10,000 years from now, as long as that document's preserved. And the language and the meaning of the word is roughly the same. Well, sure. Yeah, you get into that problem. <laughs> you know, one one example that my uh, professor, one of my history professors all, always gave is, for instance, uh, in, I don't know which, which language it is, but one of the, one of the languages that the, the Bible was written in very early on, I don't know if it's the Aramaic or the Greek or the Latin or whatever, there's no punctuation. They didn't use punctuation. I thought that was Hebrew. Mm-hmm. So take a phrase like uh, where Jesus says, and I don't have it in front of me, so I'm paraphrasing, but when he's on the cross, um, you know, he, he turns to the, the, the other c- criminal that repents, you know, on the cross, and he says, you know, I say to you this day you will be in heaven. So where does the comma go in that sentence? Is it, I say to you, comma, this day you will be in heaven, as in I am using my power as the Messiah to allow you to come directly into heaven today after you die from your crucifixion? Mm -hmm. Or is it, I say to you this day, comma, you will be in heaven, as in, I am telling you here today in front of all of these people that because you have repented, you will go to heaven. But he's not saying that he's bypassing any part of the process. He's just saying that you will go to heaven. And, And there are doctrinal shifts that that are based on this because did Jesus use his power you know as as the bible says i'm i i myself am not religious so i'm not proselytizing i'm just saying from the perspective of the people writing the bible is Jesus saying that he used special power to immediately let him go into heaven or is he just saying that you know you're going to get there eventually because you repented it's and, all based on a comma exactly because there's no comma in the original so the people translating had to decide where to put the comma. <laughs> and then that leads to confusion. Mm-hmm. And that going from a document. Right. So documents can lie too, but documents lie a lot less than people. <laughs> the, the amount of degradation as the years go on is less than people. So as more documents become available, our perception of this history is going to change again. Because a lot of what we are basing our history on now, people like myself and Keith, are basing a lot of our history on what people have told us and what appeared in publicly disseminated media like newspapers and trade publications, where there's always going to be a spin of some kind because you're trying to put your best foot forward when you're speaking about things publicly. Right. So we're largely relying on sources that are not as reliable as good old-fashioned corporate documents. There are exceptions. There are certainly some documents that have come out for instance, Kurt Vindel and Marty Goldberg, who have done pretty good work uh, on Atari, on the history of Atari, they have a lot of documents that Kurt literally, you know, was pulling out of dumpsters when Atari Games was going belly up. You know, he went out and saved documents that were being thrown out because the company was going away. Mm-hmm. So 
some of the history being done right now is being based on documentary evidence. A lot of it is being based on contemporary publications and, or I mean contemporaneous, I mean contemporaneous publications, contemporaneous to the events, and oral history recollections. That's still better than the history that was being done 20 years ago, which was based on a lot of the same sources, but uncritically, not cross-referencing, not pulling as many different viewpoints as you could and figuring out which one makes most logical sense based on what everyone's saying. So we're kind of... If you have like five people saying one thing and one person saying another thing, it's like more likely that the five people are saying what is more likely true as opposed to the one person who is saying something different he may be recalling incorrectly or whatever. Right. So... There's going to be better work done. I mean, the work that I'm doing, the work that Keith's doing, it's probably going to be superseded another 50 years from now when some more documentary evidence comes in. Now, for some of the stuff, there is no documentary evidence anymore. Some of the really early stuff, it's either companies that don't exist anymore or it's companies that since they were in their very early days, even though they still exist, they didn't have processes in place yet for saving documents. And so stuff was just chucked, you know. There's not always going to be documentary evidence on everything, but it... We're kind of 50 years from now, there will be more documentary evidence available, and that is going to change our perception of a lot of these events again. There's going to be a lot of areas where I end up being wrong, quite frankly. Mm -hmm. But it's a continuum. 20 years ago, 15 years ago even, the very first video game history stuff being written was based on a small number of sources. The authors didn't have the time or the inclination or the ability or the money or the money to gather a lot of the documents available and gather a lot of the interviews available. So they were telling a surface level story that was based on a very small number of sources. So that history is the least valuable history. It's not completely worthless. At all, because they did talk to some people. They did gather some sources. So it, it created the, the groundwork necessary to move on to more sophisticated work. Mm-hmm. Right now, I would call ourselves in kind of finally starting to hit kind of a middle period where a lot of stories are being gathered. A lot more people are being tracked down. People like, you know, Harold Montgomery and Gene Wagner that Ethan has tracked down or people like Keith has tracked down that were at the very beginning of the industry, people like Lance Houck and Jerry Hansen that were at Gremlin that nobody remembers who they were or mm-hmm. or what they did, but but Keith knows because he tracked the stuff down very carefully. Or some of the people that I've talked to, like Bruce Davis at uh, Activision or Rich Melman at Electronic Arts, who were people that were playing critical roles in important companies but had been sidelined and or maligned by some of the people they worked with, and so their side of the story had never come out. So we're starting to broaden the voices, and we're starting to get into some good documentary evidence like Kurt and Marty with their Atari research, or Jimmy has gone to the Strong and looked at some of the primary source documents that have been donated to the Strong and has started to pull new truths out of that material, or getting into like replay and play meter magazine, which nobody had really gone through before. And now we're starting to go through those. We're at a middle stage where we're getting a lot of voices in and we're getting a lot more input and we're starting to chronicle accurately. The academics don't want to chronicle anymore. They're that's nonsense. I mean, I plan to put my work in context too, but it's not just going to be chronicling. I'm putting some of the why and the how in, not just the where, what, when, We're starting to get to the point where we're really starting to attack this with some rigor and figure out where it is. So we're kind of in the middle phase. The the final phase, so to speak, will probably happen when I'm an old man or, or dead, which is professional historians will really start accessing archives, which will have far more robust collections of papers, far more robust collections of oral histories, far more... Uh, robust collections of archival material, and then they'll get to kind of the true story, as true as we can get it. You never get it totally true. And and then, you know, four billion years from now, our son will die, and and then everything we did won't matter anymore. But... (laughs) Unless we put that special archive and shoot it off into the galaxy. That's right. And then, you know, Picard can 
can relive the entire history of video games in like an hour. Yeah, and instead of playing a flute, he has a little Atari arcade. System. That's right. He he plays Pong as the credits roll. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that's that's kind of where I see things, and and I'm glad that we're getting to the point that people like Keith and Jimmy are doing more rigorous work, and work, and we're getting to the point that institutions like the Strong and the Smithsonian are gathering the stories and the documents necessary, and I feel proud to be part of of this period and I really hope that my books can contribute to this portion of the discovery of this history but at the end of the day while I do hope my work is going to be valuable it it will ultimately be superseded by what's done 50 80 100 years from now that's true I wonder if and I know you probably don't have anything to really contribute to this but has there always been enthusiasts who lay the groundwork before the professional historians come in 80 to 100 years after the event that really try to chronicle these kind of events accurately and do sort of like the initial stuff of here's the initial surface level of chronicling of what people say and then a group of enthusiasts come back later and go well that doesn't look right if we actually cross-reference these things and then they compile stuff and then academics come in and say, okay, now I have this pile of, of chronicles done by these people. Let's give some context here. Probably. I mean, like you said, I, I don't know enough about the his, the historiography of, of all of history to be able to to add anything to that, but it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, that's that's certainly what we're living through with video game history right now, and I'm sure that's probably true for, for a lot of other areas of history as well. You know, one thing they always said about history is history repeats. That's true. <laughs> Are there anyone else you would like to give a shout out as far as their work goes? Well, I would I would just say, and we kind of already touched on this a little bit, but I would just say that in addition to the authors that and bloggers and interviewers that I think are starting to apply a little bit more rigor, it's good that there are places that are starting to collect the documents and collect the artifacts. Mm-hmm. Certainly the International Center for the History of Electronic Games in Rochester, New York is the big one. They've had personal papers, donations by the Williamses who founded Sierra and Doug Carlston who founded Broderboon, Joel Billings who founded SSI, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So they're collecting documents. Stanford University has done the same. They have Al Alcorn and Steve Bristow's papers, two of the very early employees of Atari, University of uh, Texas at Austin has done the same with Richard Garriott's papers, founder of Origin, creator mm-hmm. of Ultima. Uh, I think Nottingham. Lord British. Yes, Lord British. I think the University of Nottingham has collected some stuff in Britain. I would just say that it's good to see that the preservation is starting to happen uh, in those projects, in the Smithsonian Oral History Project and, and whatnot, because that's really critical, because without those sources of information, we won't really have any idea what's going on. We'll, we'll just be forced to rely on the oral histories only and the and the tales that have been told and and those are not always going to be accurate well even if they're not accurate they still have value even in the future even 80 to 100 years from now think of old old recordings that were done of people who did music back in the late 1800s mm-hmm. those there was actually a few people who went around and recorded oral history oral music mm-hmm and a song played by people in the South. And a lot of that would be lost to us today if that hadn't been done. And there are actually some work going on, some national institution, it eludes me which one, where they're actually taking these old records and trying to digitize them in order Mm -hmm. to preserve them properly so that they can get some of this music and a little bit of oral history preserved so that future generations can experience it. It would be interesting 100 years from now if people could go, wow, here's that fascinating game that was played back in the past. I can actually hear the guy who made that game tell it in his own words. Whether or not that accurate is immaterial, just the fact that you experience something told in the own words of the creator is magical in a way. Oh, I would definitely agree with that. So. I'm definitely hoping that this uh, Smithsonian project especially can progress beyond its initial goals and objectives and, and become something more long-lasting, which I think is 
something that Chris Weaver wants to occur too. It's just what happens. have to get that funding. <laughs> yeah, so it's how it goes. Well, that I believe handled that. What will we be covering next time? Well, uh, I guess a topic that's been on my mind recently. So oftentimes, the choice of what topic to hit next has as much to do with what I've been working on or who I've been talking to as anything else. And uh, I had the uh, great fortune uh, a few weeks back, uh, I suppose by the time this airs, it'll be a couple of months back, uh, <laughs> to talk to Frank O'Connell, who was the VP of Sales and Marketing at Mattel Electronics during the very crucial period when the Mattel Intellivision kind of broke out and became a legitimate competitor to the Atari VCS. And he's not the only person. I've talked to a couple of other people that were at Mattel Electronics as well, and it seems like the perfect opportunity to just kind of explore, very broadly speaking, where Mattel Electronics came from, kind of what they contributed, and how they went about trying to compete with Atari in the video game scene. All right, we'll delve into some of the mysteries of Mattel next time on They Create World. Check out our show notes at tcwpodcast.podbean.com where we have links to some of the things that we discuss in this and other episodes. You can check out Alex's blog at videogamehistorian.wordpress.com Email us at tcwpodcast at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter at tcwpodcast. Intro music is Airplane Mode by Josh Woodward found at joshwoodward.com forward slash airplane mode used under a creative Commons attribution license outro music is bacterial love by Rollum music found at freemusicarchive.org used under a creative Commons attribution license <laughs>